Father, we thank you for uh, this, this time that we can come together and we thank you for your word. We thank you for its richness, for its inexhaustibleness. And we thank you for the life that your word gives us. And we pray that by your spirit, your word would, uh, would enliven us tonight, Lord, that we would be excited to be students of your word excited to be those who have received your word and father we pray that we would be excited to know the god who has given us his word we want to thank you for jeremy and we thank you for the way that he has walked us through the the storyline of scripture walked us through these books of the bible and we pray father that you would help him again tonight as you have helped him so far Thank you for the material that he's worked on and pray that as he delivers that, he would have, have confidence and he would have wisdom where he would have boldness and that he would have sensitivity and or that all of these things would work together to minister to every heart who is part of this tonight. Lord, we pray for the technology, but we know that that's something that is often out of our control and we do pray that everything would run smoothly and that there would be nothing to distract us from hearing the message of scripture tonight. And so we ask that in Jesus' name. And just before I welcome Jeremy, let me just remind you again, if you could put yourself on mute, that would be a huge help. On the bottom left of your screen, you'll find the mute button. Um, I spot one or two individuals who are yet to mute, and uh, I won't name and shame. I'll just encourage you to find the mute button and uh, we can move on from there. And to, to best enjoy this, select speaker view and you'll get a good view of Jeremy and also of the handout as well. Let me hand over to you. Great, thank you very much, Duncan. Uh, lovely to see you all again. Um, it was interesting as Duncan was praying there that uh, we would have both um, boldness as well as uh, sensitivity. Um, you'll understand that often I'm saying things that are controversial because the Bible's controversial. The Bible's always been a controversial book. And uh, I, I'm saying it for you to think about. And if there are things that you don't agree with, um, there's bound to be something over these weeks that you won't agree with. But uh, examine the scriptures yourselves, like, like we're told the Bereans did. Remember the Bereans who listened to Paul? They, they listened to what he said, and then they examined the scriptures to see if what he said was true. And that's great. I, there's nothing, you know, I, I've got no um, special knowledge of truth that other teachers or preachers won't have. Um, and you need to examine everything I say according to the scriptures as well. So it is our authority. I'm not your authority tonight. I only gain authority while I am speaking the truth of scripture to you. Anyway, we're going to be starting in Jeremiah tonight, and who knows, we may even get into the New Testament if all things go well. Um, we're going to look at the, uh, the, the remaining major prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then we're going to handpick um, three of the minor prophets to have a look at as well. Um, but we want to try and make headway into at least the start of the New Testament tonight as well. So just to give the big picture overview here, um, you remember there was a united monarchy in Israel. Um, Saul, King Saul, then King David, who was the man after God's own heart and looked like he could have been a Messiah figure. And of course, God gives him this promise that uh, there will be a king to sit on David's throne forever. And you start thinking, who could this forever king be? Could it be David himself? But of course, then he sins with Bathsheba. His kingdom is split apart. Um, he recovers it again, but uh, 
never to the glories of what it was previously. And I guess for the rest of the Old Testament story, they will be looking for how can Israel return to its former glories when there was a king who loved God, honored God, and Israel was winning its victories left, right, and center. But then, of course, we have uh, Solomon, who was the wisest man in all the world. He was fabulously wealthy. Um, he had asked God for wisdom, you'll remember, and God was so pleased by that request that God gave him magnificent wealth as well. He was the man of peace who was able to build the temple. Um, David had been a man of war, you remember, because he had blood in his hands. He couldn't build the temple, but... Uh, Solomon builds this magnificent temple with his great wealth. He's a sign that when we've been given great wealth, we want to be involved in lavish worship as well. Like the woman who uh, paid thousands of pounds, literally, for that jar of perfume that she poured on Jesus' feet. So Solomon, in a sense, is the Old Testament counterpart of that lavish worship um, from a wealthy life. But of course, Solomon compromises. He marries lots of foreign women. They bring false gods into the temple. Solomon does not stop that at all. And God judges Solomon and his empire by dividing the kingdom. And then we have, for a couple of hundred years, we have the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And so um, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, rules over Judah. But there is now uh, a rival king and a rival kingdom. Jeroboam I is king over the northern tribe, which is Israel. And as we know, the sad story is the decline of kings, north of it, north, the northern kingdom in particular. Every king is evil, does evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's almost this, this repetition, this dull repetition throughout Second Kings. Such and such a king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They followed in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and so on. Um, the peak of whom is Ahab, who marries Jezebel, and there are four. 150 prophets of Baal um, and seemingly only one prophet of God who is Elijah so God is sending the prophets at a time when the kings will not listen to God's word and so that's really where we are here um, you'll know of course we have two major exiles this is so key to the rest of the Old Testament story in the northern kingdom of Israel there are prophets who bring warning after warning saying you're going to go into exile unless you repent the people do not repent so the great superpower of Assyria um, comes in 721 BC, takes the northern kingdom Israel off into exile. They are never heard from again. Then the southern kingdom Judah continues for about another 120, 130 years with prophet after prophet again coming and warning the people. And there are a couple of good kings during that time. You remember Hezekiah who brought the Passover and the north people from the north came and joined with uh, Jews from the south and they worship God during this uh, fascinating Passover feast and so Hezekiah brought a brief revival you also have Josiah the young king who discovers the book of the law has it read out publicly he tears his robe as an act of repentance he goes up and down Israel basically grinding all the idols to dust but these revivals lasted just a very short period of time and eventually king after king is not listening is not listening and there will be the second exile in 586 BC. So those are key dates. 721 BC, the northern kingdom off to Assyria. Then Babylon defeats Assyria. And then Babylon under the famous King Nebuchadnezzar comes to um, Judah, the southern kingdom, and takes them off into exile as well, 586 BC. And that's where all your prophets come in, of course. So we have what we call pre-exilic prophets who are warning the people that judgment is coming. So Assyria is going to come. Babylon's going to come. They're going to take you off into exile. Then we have prophets during the exile. 
um, prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel that we're going to look at tonight. Um, they were both in Babylon. They'd already been taken off in 586 BC into exile. And so they write from exile and their prophecies, of course, will be explaining why the people have come into exile. These are the sins that meant you had to come into exile. Um, but God is still with you in exile. We'll find at the beginning of Ezekiel a glorious vision of the sovereignty of God. He's not just limited to Israel. He's, he's with his people in Babylon as well. And uh, then they will promise each of these pro prophets, even though they're saying that Israel deserves to be punished, deserves their exiles, they all point to a future day when God will restore his people, will redeem his people through this Davidic king, sometimes just called David, though of course he's not David because David's dead by now, but he, he will, you're meant to think back constantly to 2 Samuel 7, there will be a king to sit on David's line forever. And we have this continuing storyline, began right back to Abraham. God promised Abraham through one of your descendants I will bless all the nations of the earth. Then we add to that promise to Samuel 7, there will be a king to sit on David's throne. So we're looking out for this king, this Messiah figure, this anointed one who will do something that will ensure that the blessing of God stretches not just to Israel, but to all the nations of the earth. And so, so the stage is very much set by the time Jesus Christ comes. So to get back into the story of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a prophet both before the exile, just immediately before the exile. So things are really heating up. Babylon is on the scene and Jeremiah is warning the people of Judah, look, Babylon is coming. God is going to take the people off into exile. And one of Jeremiah's big problems is that there are false prophets in the courts of the kings who are telling the king, look, there's no way God is going to judge us like that. We have the Ten Commandments. We are God's special people. Temple worship is continuing as always. There's no way that God's going to send us into judgment. And so Jeremiah has to bring this very uncomfortable message. He's a very lonely man. He has to be. And of course, his calling, he's so young in his calling, God gives him this uncomfortable calling. Jeremiah says, don't call me God. I don't want to do this. I'm too young. I don't want to bring this message of judgment to your people. But that is what he is called to do. Now, he lives through and witnesses the downfall of Jerusalem, we're told here, point two. Um, and the book of Lamentations, which we won't really look at tonight, but the book of Lamentations is again written by Jeremiah. Actually, in a sense, you have a live webcam as the Babylonians are just wiping out Jerusalem. And so you have this acrostic poem. That's what Lamentations is. Um, it has five chapters. Chapters one, two, four, and five all have 22 verses in them. 22 verses because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and it's very beautifully put together. So it's like um, verse one will start with A, verse two will start with B, verse three will start with C and so on. But of course, obviously in the Hebrew language, and then the middle chapter, chapter three, is 66 verses long, which is the Hebrew alphabet three times through. So you'll have each verse starting with a new letter of the alphabet. And bang in the middle of Lamentations is the most famous verse that God's mercies are new every morning. Right in the middle of the despair on either side that God is allowing his people to be wiped out by these Babylonians, Jeremiah reminds God's people um, God's mercies are new every morning. We can trust in him. He will be faithful to those who are faithful to him.
So that's very much the scene. Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet because his life as a prophet is so, so difficult. He's rejected by kings. You'll remember famously he's thrown in a pit. And ironically, it's in Ethiopia and the rescues him from a pit. And that's actually a very important uh, story in the life of my family because my father read that story years ago, um, in the 1950s, at about the time when Jim Elliott was going to be a missionary in Ecuador. And uh, there were a whole new generation of missionaries were being inspired. And my dad felt called to Ethiopia through that passage of this Ethiopian lifting Jeremiah from the pit. You'll know, of course, that an Ethiopian is also mentioned in the New Testament, the Ethiopian eunuch, who's one of the first international converts in the book of Acts and spreads the gospel to Ethiopia, which has become a country with a fascinating history, including lots of Christianity. So my father went, um, my eldest brother was born there. Um, all three of us did some schooling there. I was the youngest of three. I came home too early, but it's, it's been very much part of our family history. 17 years, my dad was there, um, left behind him a church with 25 people in it, um, had to leave because the communist government took over. And um, now that little group of 25, it was closed by the communists, reopened again 10 years later when freedoms came and they discovered that there were over a thousand people now who had been meeting underground. Today, it's about 14,000 people and uh, it has 86 different congregations, full-time evangelists, all of that kind of stuff. Don't know why I'm telling you all of this, but the Ethiopian is taking me into that story. God is at work. And in fact, if you think in your neck of the woods, God isn't doing very much, we may feel like we're living in the days of the prophets where even the national church is not listening to God. Let's remember that even though it feels that way in Scotland and it feels that way in the UK, um, revival is at work in other parts of the world, South America, Africa, China. Um, you probably know the figures, over 100 million Christians in China now facing persecution, of course, but God is still very much alive. Christianity is still the fastest growing people group in the world, and uh, it's also the most persecuted people group in the world. So Jeremiah's lifestyle of, of being persecuted for the sake of the gospel by his own people, that's kind of very much the tenor in which we live today in Scotland. You look at the state church, which in many ways has abandoned the word of God. There are obviously some very good Church of Scotland churches where there are evangelical ministers who are preaching the word and, and suffering for it. Um, but really, we feel like Jeremiah. We feel like a, a small number of prophets lost in a sea of decadence, in a sea of, um, of uh, heresy, really. Um, I watched a couple of years ago there was a, a video on the atonement and David Robertson, a, a good friend of mine, solid evangelical, was, like, was uh, debating with the Church of Scotland minister. And the Church of Scotland minister was saying, you know, how can you say that Christ died for our sins? How can you say that uh, uh, Jesus' blood saves us? That's far, far too violent. We want to move away from that kind of picture. And you realize here is a church that has abandoned the gospel. We pray for faithful ministers to be in it and to return to it. Um, so that the gospel can win the day there. But this is the day in which we live, the kind of day that Jeremiah lived. He had to face opposition from people who called themselves God's own people, from a church system, if you like, that called itself God's own. The irony is, of course, that um, while there was worship going on in Jeremiah's day, there was murder going on in the streets. Uh, but there was the sense that uh, so long as we get our rules right, so long as we get our rituals right on a Sunday, or of course it would have been the Sabbath for them, the Friday and Saturday scenario, so long as we, we look good on a Sunday, it doesn't matter how else we live. 
and there was corruption on the streets. Jeremiah is telling the people, you're going into exile because you have disobeyed the Ten Commandments. And he enumerates all the ways in which there is corruption from the top to the bottom. And the priests themselves are living decadent, immoral lives while still leading worship services. Isn't that astonishing? And it's a challenge for all of us today, isn't it? Are we, are we in church just to look good on a Sunday and we don't care what we're doing from Monday to Saturday? Do our lives throughout the week match our Sunday worship? We sing on Sunday, all for Jesus. That was my closing hymn on Sunday. Jesus, all for Jesus. Could I really sing that with integrity? Um, we've got to ask ourselves that. It, has our worship become just formal and staid and formulaic? Or is this worship of the heart and and Sunday, in a sense, is the icing on the cake to a whole week where we are devoted to the Lord Jesus, where we're going into work, longing to, to live for him, to live holy lives, to share his name with other people. Um, it's up to each of us to say, um, we don't want just formulaic worship. We want this to be worship of the heart that is 24-7, not just Sunday at 11 o'clock in the morning, but 24-7, I lay my life on the altar for Jesus Christ. Jeremiah talked about the hypocrisy of their worship. This is why God was going to judge them. He also brought a very unpopular message that uh, you know, I want the people of Judah to surrender to Babylon. I mean, that was incredibly unpopular for these nationalistic Jews. How dare you say that, Jeremiah? That's why he got into trouble. So the false prophets are saying to the king, God's not going to send us into exile. We are his people. And then they're saying, this guy, Jeremiah, wants us to surrender to this foreign nation, to this bunch of pagans. And of course, Jeremiah was asking the people to do that because he knew that exile was inevitable. He had received that message from God and he cared for the people. He loved the people. So he was quite prepared to bring a message that would make him suffer, a message that would make him appear like, you know, he sticks out like a sore thumb. He is the only one speaking the truth while everybody else is speaking lies. And here's a challenge for every preacher out there today. Um, we cannot bring the word of God to people today and expect that message to be popular. The word of God is, is like, it's like um, there's a full-on mid-air collision between two Boeing 747s when the gospel is being preached as it really is and cultural norms are being preached as they really are. There's just a massive clash. You cannot help it in areas of sexuality, in areas of gender, in areas of you name it, um, abortion, all of these moral issues. Um, you cannot preach the gospel and be popular. It's impossible. And of course, you, you cannot even say now where there's a, a well-thought-out atheistic population who look to science as their God. You cannot say today, God created the universe. He created it out of nothing. Even though the arguments for that are so powerful and so strong, you cannot say that in the public arena without getting into trouble. And the question for us as Christians is, are we willing to put our heads above the parapet and, and stand up and be counted for the moral values of the Bible, for the truth that Christ died for our sins, has risen again, and is coming again to judge the world. There was the other issue. Jeremiah's main message to bring was a message of judgment. Now, I don't want to bring a message of judgment every week. I will be well listened to when I say God loves you. He wants you to be friends with Jesus, and he has a lovely, sweet life planned ahead of you. I cannot say that. Because I've read the story of Noah, which ends in a flood that, that wiped out half the world. I've read Jesus saying in Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. I have read Jesus saying, 
um, take up your cross and follow me. If you're ashamed of me in my generation and you're not prepared to stand for truth, I will be ashamed of you when I come with all my holy angels. And of course, we see the life of Christ himself, that he is becoming the suffering servant. Um, people walk away from him. And he says to his disciples at one stage in John's gospel, will you also walk away from me? We've got to ask that question. To truly follow the suffering servant, truly follow the Messiah, we will suffer as well. Are we prepared for that? And uh, the sufferings that are probably more vocal and verbal today will become more physical in days to come. There is no doubt about that. There are street preachers being put in prison. There is new hate bills being passed in Scotland that down the line will make it illegal to teach from the Bible. Um, and of course, if we're told it's illegal to teach from the Bible, what are we to do? What did the apostles do? What did Jeremiah do? He gave his life for it. That's the bottom line. And Jeremiah preaches this message, which is so unpopular in his day, and it's so relevant to us today. Preach the truth when people want to hear it, and especially when they don't. Remember Paul saying to Timothy, in view of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, preach the word, preach it in season and out of season, when people want to hear it and don't want to hear it. If we were preaching back in the 1950s, 1960s, when Billy Graham could come, became best friends with the Queen, and the, the media welcomed him uh, wonderfully. Um, you compare that to today, there's no way. If Billy Graham came with exa in exactly the same way, with exactly the same message, we would kick him out today. He wouldn't, even, he wouldn't even be allowed our venues. That's the way it is. That's how our culture has changed. Will we stand for the truth when we will really have to pay for it? Down to point five here, Jeremiah hates the sin but loves the sinner. Here's the incredible thing that Jeremiah, even though he sees a decadent people who are totally against God's laws and God's plans, um, he still loves them and he wants to pray for them. And he keeps praying for Jerusalem when God tells him not to. God says, there's no point praying for these people. They are lost. They are condemned. Exile is coming. They're going to be out of here. Jeremiah keeps praying for them. Do we have a heart for lost people who are heading to a lost eternity? That's the bottom line. Proverbs says, hold back those who are staggering towards the slaughter. Those are the days in which we're living. We're living in the last days of the last days. Um, the fig tree is becoming tender, as Jesus said. These are the signs of the times. There's no doubt that a global pandemic is part of the signs of the times. That doesn't mean I know when Jesus is coming. No one can say when he's coming. But you can certainly see signs of the times, can't you? in both the moral depravity and, and amorality of our day, linked with worldwide pandemics, which Revelation would just call pestilence. We seem like we're walking through um, the book of Revelation. Politics becoming much more polarized, religion becoming much more extreme, and authority figures being completely lost, children disobeying their parents, anarchy. Um, we are not far away from the very end. So will we keep praying for lost souls to bring them into God's kingdom before, in that sense, God closes the door of the ark and no one else is allowed in. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, we will have to be weeping preachers. We will have to be weeping evangelists in our day because the vast, vast majority who have been taken in by a self-centered worldview linked to iPads and iPhones and I this and everything, the self-made man or woman, that, that feeling is so immersed today that uh, when the gospel says you must die to yourself, um, there's, ju there's just going to be a clash of worlds and they're going to cast us out. I was noticing today on Twitter, you get trends in Twitter, what everybody's talking about. And today there was the announcement that uh, 
the movie The Passion of the Christ 2 is coming out. Jim Caviezel, who starred on The Passion of the Christ, he's got, there's going to be another movie coming. You should have seen the kind of comments that were made on Twitter today about Jesus. Um, the, the blasphemy of it, the making jokes of it, the anger of it, thinking, thank goodness we've got rid of this thing called religion. Thank goodness we have got rid of Jesus. It's that kind of scenario that we're trying to preach into, and we will suffer for it. So that's very much Jeremiah's message. Jeremiah is, it's a chaotic book to reflect chaotic times. Isaiah the prophet is much better organized into specific units. Jeremiah, you can read it and there's no flow of thought. There's no continuity between the chapters, but, but each oracle has such a passion to it. As, as Jeremiah himself complains to God, God, why have you called me to this? There's a lot of heart searching in Jeremiah himself. And in fact, at one stage, he, he says, God, you have deceived me, calling me into a role like this. So Jeremiah is so real with his God, a reminder to us that some of the godliest men and women have, been, have brought their complaints to God. That's, that's honoring God, saying, God, why is life like this? Why is Scotland in despair? Why has the national church abandoned you? Why is it so tough to be a Christian? Take your complaints to God, as the psalmists did, as Jeremiah did, as Habakkuk did. God doesn't run away or despise our complaints. With saying to him, Lord, you are sovereign. You could change these things if you wanted to. So why aren't you? Um, and of course, there will come a day when he will change things so incredibly in the last judgment that um, a new heavens and a new earth will come in. But we, we wait for that day and things are going to get worse until that day comes. Um, there will be terrible times in the last day, says Paul to Timothy. A kind of a reflection of the days that Jeremiah lived through. So point six here, it's a grim book, but there is hope. One of the key passages for the whole storyline of the Old Testament is Jeremiah 31, where God promises, I will write my law on your hearts, which is basically saying throughout the Old Testament, um, the, the law, the, the word of God was an external thing. So people tried to obey it, but they couldn't because they were sinners, as Paul will explain so clearly in the book of Romans. But now we're told that when this Messiah comes and he dies for the sins of the world, the Holy Spirit will come and apply Christ's death and resurrection and its power to our hearts. And the main thing that that will achieve is that God will come and live within us. He will write his law on our hearts. We will have an inner motivation as New Testament believers that Old Testament believers never had. So in a sense, we are more accountable to live for Jesus Christ, to love him with all our hearts because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So Jeremiah 31, a key text for the whole story of the Bible, where the Holy Spirit's role is to bring the law of God written in stone at Sinai and bring it and write it on soft um, hearts. You remember God was always complaining. Moses was always complaining in the Old Testament that I have a stiff-necked people. Their hearts are like stone. They're not ready to listen to me. God will come and do a miracle in our hearts, a new covenant miracle through the death of Christ, through being born again of the Spirit of God. He will write the law in our hearts and we will be able to have internal motivation for the first time to serve God. And uh, Jeremiah will say the exile in Babylon. And of course, you know, the book covers both just before the exile and during the exile. Um, but Jeremiah promises us the exile will last only 70 years. And it's fascinating, Daniel in Babylon gets the chance to read Jeremiah. And he reads in Jeremiah that the exile will last only 70 years. 
And Daniel then uh, gives out a prayer in chapter 9 of Daniel to say, these 70 years are almost up. Let's get ready for God to take us back to our promised land now that we've been in exile. So Jeremiah's 70-year prophecy was, was accepted as the word of God for those people who were in exile waiting for God to act and move again. And Daniel reads Jeremiah and it makes a huge impact to his prayer. He reads on the back of reading, he prays on the back of reading the word of God. Isn't that interesting? Do you and I do that? Is our prayer life a shopping list? I want this God, I want this God. Or do we read the word of God where we're called to seek God's kingdom to come and his will be done on earth as in heaven and say, I want my prayers to have that kind of focus to them. I want to pray worship prayers. I want to pray the glory of God. I'm less interested in my life being happy and going well and going sweetly. I'm less interested in that than in God's kingdom coming and God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So um, that's all I'm going to say for Jeremiah. Let's move on to Ezekiel. Again, people struggle with the book of Ezekiel. It's one of the hardest books to preach, actually. But we've got to understand, again, where Ezekiel is. Ezekiel is our first prophet who is actually in exile. Um, his, the opening chapter says that he was by the Kibar River when he received the word of the Lord. The Kibar River was in Babylon. So he was, he was away, out of his comfort zone right from the beginning of his life. He was away from God's people. And let's remember that Nebuchadnezzar takes the people of Judah into exile, 586 B.C., he has already started taking people into exile earlier than that. 597 BC is when Ezekiel goes into exile and he becomes a priest to the exilic community. And it's fascinating, actually, when you ch chart all the dates in Ezekiel, Ezekiel becomes a priest at 25 years old. That's when his, his oracles start. Now, he doesn't have an official ceremony to be a priest at all. He doesn't think of himself as a priest. He thought, you know, I can only be a priest back in Judah. But it's interesting that he, his oracles start when he's 25, which is exactly the same age that priests back in Judah would have become priests. So his first oracle is when he's 25, and his last oracle is when he's 50, which is exactly the same time span of the ministry of a priest back in Jerusalem. So even though Ezekiel didn't intend to be, he became Israel's priests, priest in exile. And that's a very important point because here in, in part two here we say his message is again about judgment against Israel. Um, a bit like Jeremiah, he's got this negative message to bring. The first 24 chapters are basically, Israel, now that you are in exile, let me try and help you understand why. Because people are, are confused. Um, you remember that famous psalm, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept as we remembered Zion. These people of Judah were then estranged from their homeland, estranged from the temple. And of course, the presence of God was so intimately linked with the temple and its worship system. They thought, we are miles away from God now. God's back in Jerusalem. But what's happened to God? Because the temple's been destroyed and all the holy articles have been taken away by, by Babylon. What has happened to God now? He was so linked with the temple. So, Ezekiel brings this glorious vision right at the beginning. Um, it's one of the most famous parts of Ezekiel, where he sees this vision of wheels and eyes. I mean, it's a, it's a bizarre vision. It's, it's apocalyptic to some extent. But the basic idea behind it is that God is all-seeing. This is such an important uh, part of Ezekiel, that God is not limited to Israel, that God is a worldwide God, and he is as much with the exiles in Babylon as he was with his people back in Judah. You don't need a temple to worship God. Um, and of course, Stephen 
in Acts um, chapter 6 and 7 before his martyrdom, he will make that precise point. God is not limited to Jerusalem. He's not limited to a temple. In, in the people's day, they all had to come to Jerusalem for their worship ceremonies and stuff like that. So it was a whole new concept here that Ezekiel is teaching the people God is not limited to Israel. He is the all-seeing God. There's wheels. He can move anywhere he wants. There are eyes. He can see everything that he wants to see. And there's these creatures coming out. He is the almighty, all-powerful, all-wise God. So Ezekiel is saying to these exiles, here is why you've come into exile. God hasn't abandoned you. God is refining you. He is judging you for his own purposes. And you people, you deserve his judgment because this is how you've gone against his law. Here's how you've disobeyed the Ten Commandments over generations now of king after king who led you astray. But if you will stick with this God, if you will realize that he is your God, even here in Babylon, he has a bright future for you. And um, Ezekiel calls the people to be watchmen and he himself is called a watchman. This is one of the key images that's used throughout the Old Testament prophets. Um, the idea of a watchman, of course, is um, you're waiting for the enemy army to come and you're kind of in this watchtower. You are the guy watching out to give the first warning that the enemy is coming so that people can prepare for battle. And Ezekiel is this kind of watchman. He's the prophet of God who can see things through God's eyes and he can warn people about what's coming, which was, of course, all these... Uh, um, pre-exilic prophecies were warning people that judgment of God is coming. So we are called to be watchmen today as well, watchmen and watchwomen. We do this through prayer. Are you going to be a watchman or a watchwoman for your people? Not just for your own life. Lord, look after me, look after my family. May my kids have a great education and may we all live happily ever after. Our prayers need to go way beyond that. God has called us to be watchmen and watchwomen for his people in this nation. To warn God's people when that needs to happen, to understand God's heart for our day, and to pray that God will bring new people into his kingdom, and that God will keep his people holy in this day and age where there is so much sin arife. Um, will we be watchmen and watchwomen? As you look around the churches in Scotland, which meeting during the week is the least attended meeting of the bunch? Um, if you don't say prayer meeting, I'll be very surprised. Um, and you wonder why we have a sense that the glory of God has left us. Why do we feel that the glory of God has left us? This is a huge issue in Ezekiel as well. Ezekiel gives this image a little bit later on down where God's glory, he literally sees it like, a, like an object, like a cloud, and it, and it removes itself from the temple. He's looking back in those days when the priests in Jerusalem were uh, committing immorality. They were miles away from God while conducting their worship services. And as Ezekiel paints that picture, he then sees the glory of God rising like a cloud, leaving the temple. Um, God could not dwell anymore with his decadent and unholy people. And the exile was coming, in a sense, for God to judge the false religion of Israel. He was judging it, just as, of course, Christ would later do when he curses the fig tree. Remember that? Um, again, the religion of Israel was all about rules and regulations, not a personal relationship with God. So, so Jesus judges the religion of Israel by um, taking a whip and, and getting the, the market sellers out of the temple. What a disgrace that it had become a, like a shop. God's temple had become a shop. Um, same thing was in um, Old Testament times with Ezekiel. Um, the people were living lives miles away from God. 
God's glory was departing because God in his glory could not live in the midst of a people that had become so decadent, so evil. And Ezekiel watches the glory of God depart. What a thought. What's happened to Scotland? This nation where, you know, I keep on mentioning this, but in 1910, we had planned to send missionaries all across the world to re-evangelize the world. What has happened to Scotland? Could we say there's a phrase in Samuel called Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. Um, do we need a new generation of watchmen and watchwomen in Scotland who will ensure that the glory of God does not depart, who will warn God's people that decadent lifestyles cannot survive today? I think one thing that we are seeing in the church in our day in Scotland is a refining, a little bit like exile, refined God's people. Um, there's a sense in which the, the state church emptying of people, what it's being emptied of is nominalism. People only come to church today in Scotland if they really want to. It used to be you came because your family told you to come or it was a traditional thing to come. In Victorian England, it was very much a traditional thing to come. 90% of people went to church on a Sunday. It was almost law. Our day, the day the pendulum has swung so massively today, it's we're 1.5 or 2% evangelical. God is refining his church. And I find very, very few people who come to church today who are just nominal. God is refining his people. And if we get down to almost like a stump, like Jesse's stump, one and a half percent of us, maybe that one and a half percent of us of the nation will be a holy stump and God can build again on a holy stump full of watchmen and watchwomen who are praying, who are holy, who are ready to take the gospel out and suffer for the gospel in, a, in, a, in the darkest day that Scotland has known. Will you be that? Will I be that? There's no point us coming to things like Old Testament overview if we're just here to gain head knowledge, if we don't hear the challenge. We are living in days like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Are we going to respond like they did to be watchmen and watchwomen and be a holy bride for Christ? So chapters 4 to 24, um, there are oracles prophesying the fall of Jerusalem again. Um, uh, Ezekiel is in Babylon from 597. So... Um, he, he sees from a distance what's happening in Jerusalem, oracles prophesying the fall of Jerusalem, this removal of God's glory from the temple. Ezekiel's wife dies. You, you feel horrific. God uses this as a picture. The, the mourning of Ezekiel for his wife, his spouse, is a picture of God mourning for the, his people who have just walked away from him. And you'll remember in other prophets as well, Hosea, for example, which we won't look at tonight, but Hosea calls Israel a prostitute. You've gone after other lovers. When, when Israel gave itself to other gods, other idols, um, God was so deeply offended. It was like his wife had died. His wife had run away from him. That's how God feels. The prophet Ezekiel has to enter into the emotions of God who feels abandoned by his own people, the people he called in Exodus, the people he rescued, the people he, he brought into covenant with himself and gave them a promised land and gave them everything they could have possibly wanted. Now they've gone away from him. Are we going to be unfaithful to God in our day as well? Are we going to chase after our idols of money and sex and power and fitting in with the me-centered culture? That's, that's probably the biggest one. Are we going to fit in with this kind of woke culture where we build a life for ourselves, that we have everything just the way we would like, and the whole idea of taking up your cross and following Christ has gone so out the window, like the glory of God disappearing from Israel. That's the challenge for us today. Can we feel the tears of God today at the disobedience of his people, at the emptying of churches? Will we be this holy stump 
to rebuild the glory of God in this nation. 25 to 32, I'm not going to go into big details here. It's, it's judgment against all the nations. You remember we said from Isaiah that uh, God isn't just speaking to Israel, but he has his eyes on all the surrounding nations. And of course, the, the world in Ezekiel's day and Isaiah's day seemed much smaller than our world today. The Americas hadn't been discovered. Australia hadn't been discovered, all that kind of thing. Um, but the, the surrounding nations that Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all talk about would have been the world. Isaiah talks about the islands as well. And God has very specific judgments for these nations because he has seen how they're living their lives. Not as if his eyes are just on Israel. His eyes are on all the nations of the world. Of course, in the grand plan that these nations will be called back to himself. But in Old Testament days, they are as evil, if not more so than Israel. And his judgment is going to come to them. But there's also thoughts that God will do something. He will send this Messiah. He will come and bring the nations back to himself. There's very much a worldwide vista. And then chapters 33 to 48, there's a bright spot. I mean, Ezekiel is a dark book, but um, there are oracles of consolation for Israel. And we have this famous passage, Ezekiel 34, that God is a good shepherd. Do those words sound familiar to you? That's what exactly Jesus calls himself. I am the good shepherd. And you'll remember Jesus in John 10 is comparing himself to false shepherds who do who ran away at the sign of trouble. They, they didn't protect the flock from the wolves. And uh, that's exactly what was happening um, in Ezekiel's day, that the leaders of Israel were not good shepherds. They were in it for themselves. Um, and they weren't watching out for the flock. That's why the flock can be devastated by the nation of Babylon, because their leaders have let them down. Jesus, by comparison, is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the one who goes and seeks after the wanderer. The leaders of Israel had not gone and sought after the wanderer. They were not the kind of pastors and leaders that God wanted them to be. Jesus is the good shepherd. And you recognize Jesus' leadership by the fact that he lays down his life for his sheep. That's how much he loves them. That's how much he wants to protect them. So Jesus, in this good shepherd metaphor, um, is, is, building a very, um, is building an image that the people of the, the Jews of his day would have totally understood because they knew Ezekiel 34. We don't so much. But he was building off the image of, of being the ultimate good shepherd that Israel has been lacking, someone who can lead us like a king um, to glory and someone who will protect us by laying down his own life. Ezekiel 37, another famous passage where um, there are, the, the prophet has an image of, of dry bones in a valley. There's death among God's people. There is no life. The people are in exile now. Um, there seems no hope for them. They are as insensitive to the voice of God as a cadaver is to a human voice. Um, I remember one, in one of my Bible college classes, um, a, a preaching lecturer took us to a cemetery. Seriously, he took us to a cemetery and he asked us to preach to the tombstones. Um, Dear Mr. Smith, um, dead in this grave. I want to tell you, Christ died for your sins and rose again for you. I mean, we all had to say something for about two minutes. And we thought, what is this guy playing at? He's, he was telling us as preachers, we will speak to cadavers half the time, to people who are oblivious to the voice of God. And we, we need the touch of the Holy Spirit if our words are going to have any power um, in the life of dead bones, dry bones in a valley. And of course, God's message to Ezekiel is prophesy to these dry bones. It's only the, the power of the word of God carried by the spirit of God that can bring life to dead people. And of course, 
um, Ezekiel then sees these dry bones taking on flesh and becoming an, a living army for God. This was going to happen because God was going to take his people out of exile again. He's going to return them to their land. And from that land, the Messiah would come and the kingdom of God would grow. That's the vision from Ezekiel 37. Um, how relevant to our day in Scotland today. Are we not a valley of dry bones? And we need the word of the Lord to come with fresh power uh, as the spirit, the, the, the wind of the spirit blows through the church in a sense, blowing out all the decay that's within, all the unholiness, all the idolatry, all the me first, all the empty prayer meetings. May the Spirit take our words and bring life to them so that the dead come back to life, so the dead Christians can come back to life, if I put it that way. These were God's own people who were the dry bones, and they needed to be reawakened to the, to the sound of their maker. God can do this. But it takes watchmen and watchwomen who are, will pray, God, we long, like the desert longs for rain. We long that you would come again, move again in Holy Spirit power to awaken your people, to awaken a witness for your name in this nation, which has seen great, great works of God in the past, but is now entirely dead to you. Awaken your people and through your people, awaken this nation to yourself again. God can do this. He can make dead things come to life. We know that because he raised his own son from the dead. And he uses preachers today. And anybody, it doesn't have to be a preacher in a pulpit, can be you going into your workplace. But you are prepared to come and speak the word of God to other people. And you are praying that the Holy Spirit will bring life where there is death. Um, I cannot win a single soul through logic. Logic only takes you so far. It's the breath of God, the spirit of God, bringing life to a soul that is dead that's how the gospel comes that's how salvation comes so i have a prayer team of 10 people in this church every week every wednesday they send me an email saying can you tell me where you're preaching this week um, what passage are you preaching how can we pray for you and that group exists because they are praying that even if I'm, I'm having a bad week they are praying that the spirit of god will anoint these lips to bring life eternal life soul-changing life to people who are dead until God moves again in a nation that has lost its way. I keep on feeling like I'm repeating myself in these prophets, but this is the message we need to hear in our day, where our worship is sometimes formulaic, where our state church has gone off the rails. And uh, Ezekiel 40 to 48 will finish with this vision of a pure new worship in the temple. Some people have thought that Ezekiel's temple was a literal temple. They'll think there will be a literal temple built one day on some mountain in Jerusalem. I'm not so sure that that's true. Um, the temple is so large, it's almost unbuildable and the way it's set up. But the whole idea is of there will be pure Levites worshiping the Lord as God intends. And it's really a picture of heaven. It's a picture of glory. One day you and I, sinners though we are, failures though we are, will be glorified. We will be so clothed with Jesus Christ that we will worship God in an ideal way forever and ever and ever in his holy temple. That is the vision that stirs us and keeps us going. So that's how we read about Ezekiel's temple. Very difficult passages, but glorious passages as we think of the new Jerusalem where worship will be all that God wants it to be. Right, moving on to Daniel. Um, historical background to Daniel again. He is another exile um, like, like Ezekiel was. He's in Babylon. We don't know whether they ever met. There's no mention of each other, but they're in the same place more or less. But Daniel is right in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, he rises in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. 
I wish we could spend all night on Daniel. It's probably my favorite book of the Old Testament and has had much more of an influence than its size would suggest. Um, the book was written about 530 BC. It's important that we wrestle with this because liberal scholars look at Daniel and say it couldn't have possibly been written in 530 BC because its prophecies are so incredibly um, acute. Daniel will predict the empires that will follow the Babylonian Empire. Um, uh, but we, we know, for example, that, that the language that Daniel uses in Daniel relates to the day in which he lived and not later. If you imagine the English that was written 400 years ago is very different to the English written today. You can analyze more or less the time frame that that language is written. It's the same kind of thing as you can do with Daniel. You can analyze the language of Daniel and say, this is pretty much the time frame it was written. In the 500s BC is the best fit. We also know, as another little tidbit, that in the Qumran caves where lots of scrolls of the Old Testament were discovered, there was a complete scroll of Daniel that was discovered in about 160, that, that, that states that it's from 160 BC. It wasn't discovered in 160 BC, it was discovered in the 1940s by a shepherd boy who threw a stone in these caves and suddenly all of these manuscripts come to light. A full manuscript of Daniel, which according to carbon dating goes back to about 160 BC. So Daniel was already a text that was revered and accepted as the word of God that these Essenes in Qumran would have read as the word of God by 160 BC. It takes a long time for a book to become scripture. So Daniel must have been written considerably earlier than that. So it's very reasonable to accept the Bible's own claims that the book was written about 530 BC so that the predictions that Daniel, are make, Daniel is making are just astonishing. Let's get into some of those. Um, but before we do that, the first six chapters are basically the narrative part. Verse, chapter seven onwards will be the visions part where future kingdoms are mentioned and so on. Um, but the first six chapters are basically um, how to live a godly life in a pagan setting. Daniel is in a pagan setting. Chapter one, he knows where to draw the line. He knows how to show that he is a Christian, if you like. Um, the, where he draws the line is the food that was offered. He didn't want to eat food that was offered to idols, all that kind of thing. He decides to eat vegetables and said, God, God honors him for doing that. Um, where do you draw the line as you're living in a pagan working environment? What, how do you show that you're a Christian? Um, what are the things that the, the kind of conversations you won't get involved in the office gossip you won't get involved in the mockery of the boss that you won't get involved in to show that you're a Christian when somebody says what did you do on Sunday will you show that you're uh, I went to church God's important to me um, I have a Bible in my desk all those kind of things um, where do you draw the line with the culture today and say I am not going towards the culture here I'm going towards God's word and his kingdom Daniel drew the line at food and God honored him and raised him up. Of course, uh, he was a wonderful thought that Christians in a pagan empire can rise to very, very high positions because they're good workers. Back to the book of Jeremiah, actually. Jeremiah tells the people of Israel to pray for the prosperity of Babylon. So people who were who were moved away from Israel to this pagan nation. They were working in this pagan nation. Pray for the prosperity of the city. It'll be good for you if the city is prosperous, this pagan city under Nebuchadnezzar, if it's prosperous. Think about that as you go into Aberdeen and work as an accountant or whatever you do. Pray for the prosperity of the city and, and devote yourself if you're in whatever line of work you're in, teaching or, or accounts or, or oil. Um, devote yourself to that work for the prosperity of the city because ultimately it's God's city. It's a city that God wants to reclaim for himself and he wants us to be godly workers and rise up. There's nothing wrong with rising up the employment pyramid. In fact, it's a wonderful thing when you see sold out Christians who are also bosses of top companies 
I've seen bosses introducing alpha courses to their business because they're the boss. Isn't that wonderful? That's where Daniel got promoted to almost second in command to uh, Nebuchadnezzar and then later to Darius because he was a fabulous civil servant. Got himself in trouble, of course, because he would not stop praying. He had prayed all his life, but of course, jealous other civil servants who weren't Jews got him in trouble because he, he, he prayed so publicly and so openly. What, what testimony will you not give up on as you go to work? You, you can't go into work and preach John 3.16 all day every day. That's just not going to happen. But are you living a life that shows God, God's values? And are there stands that you are ready to take on moral issues? Say, for example, you will not back down from those stands because this is the word of God. And to back down from those places, you must betray your king. And you cannot do that, even if it means you get into trouble. Daniel got into trouble because he wouldn't stop praying. Um, and of course, it led to the lion's den. Awful trouble. But then, here's the beauty of it. In both the Daniel story in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, they meet God in a deeper way because they stand for truth and because they suffer for it. They meet God in a deeper way than they ever would have done had life been smooth sailing and they didn't have to stand up for the truth. Perfect example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're willing to go all the way to the fiery furnace. And we kind of think, oh, well, they knew that God was going to rescue them. They didn't. Because when Nebuchadnezzar is telling them, guys, um, I'm going to throw you to the fire. They say, well, our God can rescue us from this fire, but even if he doesn't, we're prepared to go. And of course, they're thrown in. The fire is so hot that the people who threw them in are scorched themselves. But it's as they're willing to suffer for the sake of God's kingdom that they see a fourth figure walking in the fire with them. If you're prepared to go into the fire, whatever that fire might look like, because you're standing for the truth of Jesus in a pagan environment, that is when you will meet with Jesus in a deeper way than you could possibly imagine. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by all possible means, I may take part in the resurrection to come. That is the call for Christians in Scotland today. Join Jesus in the fire. He's already walking in the fire. He's already suffering with his people worldwide. And if more intense suffering comes our way, are we prepared to stand for him? Um, go to jail if that's what it takes, but certainly stand for him in the public arena. Face the fury of other people and then meet Jesus in the fire. Um, those stories are so practical right in the middle of this prophet. But then we have Daniel's visions. And I'm going to um, give us a break in just a few minutes. Um, Daniel's visions from chapter 7 to 12, this is where it becomes really, really fascinating, um, where, where Daniel presents these, this vision of these beasts, um, and they're, they're basically naming the superpowers that are still to come in an extraordinary way. We have visions given in different ways, but they make similar points. So the four great empires, Daniel is part of Babylon, obviously, and then Daniel is predicting through the vision of the statue, for example, that, um, that Babylon will be overtaken by the Medo-Persians. And you'll know that Cyrus, who was mentioned in Isaiah, King Cyrus, who is king of the Medo-Persians, he's the one that's going to destroy Babylon and then let God's people come home. Then after the Medo-Persians, there will be the Greek empire under Alexander the Great, um, a famous hero. Um, and then when Alexander dies, his kingdom is divided into four during what we would call the intertestamental period, during the time between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of John the Baptist at the beginning of the New Testament. This is all happening in that kind of 400-year period. So we have the Babylonians leading to the Medo-Persians, the Medo-Persians leading to the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and the Greeks leading to the Romans in about 67 BC is when the Roman Empire really starts to take over from the Greeks. 
So when Christ arrives, here's the stunning thing. When Christ arrives, you have the Romans bringing all their transport systems so that the gospel can go across the world faster than ever before. The Greeks bringing their language. The Greek language was the first real worldwide language, language of trade and commerce and government and all of that. So there was a brilliant road system allowing the gospel to travel further than ever before. And language, the New Testament is written in Greek. And of course, the Old Testament was later translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, um, sometimes called the LXX 70, because there were, uh, certainly tradition says that there were 70 people who were involved in translating the Old Testament into Greek, and it's a brilliant translation. Those Greek translations of the Old Testament would have been in all the major cities among groups of Jews that Paul went to. So that when Paul went to preach the gospel to Athens and to Ephesus and all these places, they would have already been aware of the law of Moses and all of that because the, the Old Testament in Hebrew had been translated into Greek, this worldwide language. So all of that to say God is engineering these empires to do what he wants them to do when he wants them to do it, to set the background for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The astonishing thing is that in Daniel chapter 9, this, I mean, I really wish I could go into detail. I remember preaching this, and as I was preaching it in Edinburgh at Faith Mission Conference, I almost had to stop in the middle of preaching because it was so wonderful, so wonderful. We get to the point where Daniel is predicting the Roman Empire, and we are told that an anointed one will come, will be born during this Roman Empire. And of course, the word anointed one is simply the word Messiah. And we're told in Daniel chapter 9 that this anointed one, this Messiah, will be cut off from his people. He will be cut off from his people. What an amazing way to express crucifixion outside the city walls. The Messiah was cut off from his people, and that was going to put an end to sin. That's what Daniel 9 says that this Messiah figure would be born during the days of the Roman Empire, he would be cut off from his people, and that's what would bring the end to sin. I mean, there's the whole gospel in Daniel 9, 500 years before Jesus even arrives. And Daniel will also depict not just the empires coming after him, but the nature of those empires. For example, he will depict, he will predict that... Um, Alexander the Great's empire will travel across the world so quickly because they have the fastest horses. And he's predicting this 200 years before Alexander even comes on the scene of time. You can understand why the liberals want to change the dating of Daniel from 500 BC to about 150 BC, because his knowledge of the future is just so extraordinary. Daniel will also mention, here's a fascinating bit that we'll finish on, Daniel will also mention an antichrist figure called Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, you don't have to memorize that name, but Antiochus Epiphanes was a man who... He was a monster, basically, and he took over Jerusalem in his day. Daniel is predicting this 400 plus years in advance. He takes over Jerusalem in about 170 BC, and he goes and he does the most despicable thing possible for a Jew. He goes and he sacrifices a pig on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. That's what he does, and it's called, that act is called the abomination of desolation. And if you understand Daniel here, Daniel will predict this Antichrist figure, Antiochus Epiphanes, coming, doing this disgraceful thing right in the heart of Jewish religion, sacrificing a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar there. 
Later on, the emperor Titus in about 70 AD will come and he will also ransack Jerusalem and he will put up the Roman standard, the Roman flag, which was an object of worship. The Roman state was an object of worship. He will put that in the temple in Jerusalem. These are both antichrist figures, Antiochus Epiphanes and Titus. They are both predicted by Daniel 530 BC, but they will foreshadow the ultimate antichrist figure who is still to come in our day. First John will tell us there will be a series of antichrists leading to the ultimate antichrist. It's not difficult to see who some of them are. Nero was clearly an antichrist. He used to pour tar on Christians and set them on fire in his gardens for his own fun. Hitler was clearly an antichrist, exterminating six million Jews and having this kind of messianic complex. I'm sure if you were in the Second World War, you would think um, Hitler was antichrist. But of course, he's come and gone. But we are waiting for, after a series of antichrists, there will be the Antichrist who will do false miracles, it would appear. He will somehow create some kind of world government. They were getting into very complicated issues here. And he will oppose God's people and persecute them. And it will be the return of Messiah that will crush him. The story's already been written. Daniel in 530 BC is already predicting the coming of the ultimate Antichrist and that the return of the anointed one who was born during the days of the Roman Empire and was cut off from the people through crucifixion, it will be his return that will bring the end of Antichrist. And as Daniel keeps on saying, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. This is the repeated theme in Daniel. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He is over every empire. He allows an empire like Assyria to rise and then fall. Babylon rise and then fall, Medo-Persia rise and then fall, Greece rise and then fall, Rome rise and then fall, the United States rise and then fall, China rise and then, and at the end of it all, Jesus Christ will be the last man standing. He is the son of man, Daniel 7 says, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. He's been given authority by the Ancient of Days, Daniel 7. I saw the Son of Man come and giving authority by the Ancient of Days. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion will know no end. So basically the message is stick with the Messiah, God's Messiah. The future of the world belongs to him. His kingdom is indestructible. And if you believe in him, you will become indestructible as well. Right, we are charging on here. I've just selected three minor prophets. <clears throat> Let's remember that um, major prophets aren't called major because they're more important. They're called major because they're longer. So when we come to the minor prophets, we start with Hosea, 12 chapters. Joel's only three chapters. I think Jonah's four chapters and so on. They're just shorter books, but they're very important. And originally, the, the, it's called the Book of the Twelve. These 12 minor prophets would have been bound together on a single scroll, which would have been about the same length as Isaiah. So people took these minor prophets together as a unit. Um, but of course, again, we're talking about prophets who lived during the days of various kings. If you go back to that chart where there was the divided monarchy and you spot which prophet is linked in with which king, which time period, and so on. I want to mention Joel very briefly, um, very colorful little book. Um, there's a plague of locusts that is coming. Um, we're not sure whether it's a, a real physical plague or whether Joel's using a metaphor here, but my guess is it's a real physical plague of locusts. Um, Israel was a very agricultural country, so locust plagues were a, a typical thing. And of course, locusts would come and just wipe out the crops. And then Joel uses that image of a plague of locusts to describe the fact that God is going to come and judge his people. The day of the Lord is coming. You will see this, this 
theme again and again throughout the prophets, all the prophets, the day of the Lord. This is the final climactic day when God will come to judge. In Joel's day, um, this is before the exile, in Joel's day, the Jews were thinking, well, I'm really looking forward to the day of the Lord because that's the day that God's going to come and judge the nations and Israel would be brought to glory. And Joel has a very uncomfortable message. Joel says, um, Joel prophesies judgment for God's own people. And in fact, Second Peter follows up this line in saying, judgment begins with the house of God. Just as the Old Testament people of God were refined through the exile, so the New Testament people of God, the church, will be refined through God's judgments before then God judges the nations of the world climactically. Which, and this is controversial, which leads me to believe that whatever the coming tribulation is and whenever it happens, the church will pass through it. I am not a pre-tribulational rapturist who says that the church will be removed um, so that the church doesn't have to go through the suffering. Now, there's a very controversial theme. I don't want to go into details tonight, but there's certainly this theme that before the final judgment and God comes and judges the nations of the world, the great white throne and all of that, God's own people will be refined through judgment. And Matthew 24 says, during the days of tribulation, there will be more terrible times than the world has ever witnessed in its history, which sounds pretty awful. Anyway, Joel is, is prophesying that this judgment is coming. Again, he's talking about exile initially, but when he talks about the day of the Lord, remember we talked about proleptic prophecy, where the prophet will judge, will talk about something that will come very soon in his immediate day. In Joel's case, exile's coming, but it also points to a future day when the day of the Lord will come at the end of time, a day in our future. So Joel, in however many hundred BC, is prophesying beyond our own day, ultimately with this image of the day of the Lord. I think we mentioned this before, but in chapter two of Joel, it's an important prophecy about the coming of the Spirit. Your, and, and, and particularly what we call the democratization of the Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came on certain of God's people at certain times times to perform certain tasks so often we call the kings of israel the anointed ones the spirit came upon them for their role of kingship but the spirit came and then he left and so king david in psalm 51 when he's he's committed a sin with bathsheba he's now repenting for his sin he says in that in psalm 51 take not your holy spirit from me now we've got to be careful as we read that as new testament christians the holy spirit cannot be taken from us now as new testament christians we have him permanently that's the message of joel the Spirit will not be restricted to coming upon certain of God's people at certain times in the Old Testament. He will now come to live within us. In fact, if we follow Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 34, the Spirit will write God's words in our hearts. He will enable us to obey God for the first time with new inward motivations. He will rewrite our motives, if you like, which is the, the thing we call sanctification, is the Spirit at work challenging you showing up your sins for what they are and then helping you develop the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience gentleness kindness goodness faithfulness self-control all of that kind of stuff are you growing in that as you grow more and more holy and get rid of your sins that is the process that the spirit wants to take us through so if somebody claims to be born again you want to see some evidence that the holy spirit is getting to work in their hearts writing god's law there changing their motives changing their attitudes but here's the beautiful thing since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has fallen on all God's people. If you are a Christian today, if you say Jesus is Lord from your heart, you have the Holy Spirit. And uh, this was prophesied by Joel. Your young men will see visions You're on, on maidservants and manservants, on people who are considered the lowliest of the lowliest. My spirit is going to come uh, in the New Testament church. And of course, 
a lot of slaves in the ancient world became Christians. Um, but half the population of Rome in Paul's day were slaves, and a lot of them had become Christians. And they too were filled with the Spirit, every bit as much as, as the apostles themselves. Here's the wonderful thing. You have the Spirit of God in you. You have the same Spirit that dwelt in Moses as he prophesied. The same Spirit that, was, that came upon Jesus at his baptism. The same Spirit that filled the apostles as they went out and preached on the day of Pentecost. It's the same Spirit. And the question is not, how much do I have of the Holy Spirit? The question is, how much does the Holy Spirit have of me? He wants you to drink him in. He is permanently in your life, but it's up to us to keep drinking him in, to be being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Are you doing that? That's part of the message of Joel, which then Peter quotes in Pentecost, and he combines it with saying, no, the Spirit's going to come, it's going to be in all people, and then the day of the Lord is going to come. Obviously, we live in between those two points. The Spirit came 2,000 years ago at Pentecost. The day of the Lord is still to come. We live in these days. Are we making the most of people who have the Holy Spirit living within them? Let's move on to Jonah. Um, I'll spend very little time here. It's one of our favorite stories from Sunday school, rightly so. Jonah's unique because there's no oracles in Jonah. All the rest of the prophets are the prophets bringing an oracle to God's people. Jonah himself becomes the message because he is the most disobedient prophet in the Old Testament and also the most successful prophet in the Old Testament, which is a sign that success in ministry isn't always God-driven. Lots of successful ministries and huge churches. You just need to go to a guy like Joel Austin, who will give people everything they want to hear. He will tickle so many itching ears that, you know, the ears will fall off eventually. And he has built the biggest church in America and appears on Oprah Winfrey and all that kind of stuff. And he is just a heretic from start to finish. We've got to recognize these people. Jonah is unfaithful to God. He runs away. Um, we've often read Jonah chapter two as saying, um, this is Jonah's prayer of repentance. There's no repentance there at all. He keeps on being self-centered. If you look at all the I pronouns throughout Jonah chapter two, I will do this, Lord. I am far better than these pagan idolaters in Nineveh that you're calling me to save. Um, I don't want to go and save them. How can a good God like you want to save pagans like that? Um, but when I, when you rescue me from this ship, I will, uh, from this whale, I will come and offer my praises to you. It's me, 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 me. He is a walking iPad, if I could put it that way. Um, Jonah is a disgrace, so much so that at the end of Jonah two, beginning of Jonah three, the fish vomits Jonah out. The verb in Hebrew is vayaka. You can almost feel the, 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 the vomit coming out. It's a little bit like the church of Laodicea in the New Testament. I'd rather you were warm or cold, but you're good for nothing. So I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's what God does to Jonah. Jonah then comes into Nineveh. He's been in the gastric juices of a fish. So no doubt his skin is bleached utterly white now. He looks ghost-like as he comes into Nineveh, says 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. He's loving that message. Please come and destroy Nineveh, God. They're a bunch of wretches. I deserve your grace, but they don't deserve your grace. Of course, the, Nineveh, the Ninevites, remarkably, the king gets off his throne, repents, um, covers himself in, in and uh, cloth and ashes and even the cows even the beasts are covered in cloth and ashes and there's an actual a theme of animals throughout Jonah the very last verse says should I not care for my people there and all these animals um, God's interested in the animal world that's just a passing a passing thing anyway Jonah hates the people of Nineveh they are the Assyrians they are the great warlords they have treated people abominably that's true but God wants to have mercy on these repentant people if you repent there is always room in the kingdom of God for you. 
And so by Jonah chapter four, Jonah's waiting for this judgment to come. The people have repented. Jonah hates that fact. He sits outside the city, looks at the city and says, God, will you bring fire down from heaven? I'm waiting for your fire to come. But instead of the fire falling on Nineveh, the fire falls on Jonah. He's, he's so hot during the day. And then God, by his grace, allows this plant to grow very quickly and cover his face. And Jonah gets the comfort of the plant. And Jonah's so relieved to have the comfort of the plant. Um, and God has to teach his disobedient prophet a valuable lesson here. Jonah, you don't deserve my grace any more than these Ninevites do. These Ninevites can't tell their left hand from their right morally. You have had all my teaching. You've been given the Ten Commandments since you were a kid. Of course you're one of mine. Um, but these people of Nineveh, they can't tell their left hand from their right. There are 120,000 people in this city, the largest city in the world. I care for each one of them. You think they're scum. I think they're people for whom my son will ultimately die. That's the bottom line of Jonah. Do we not share God's compassion for people who seem so evil, so away from God's grace? Do they deserve God's grace any less than we do? We homegrown believers, many of us who ourselves have sinned and, and been hypocrites and all of that kind of thing, just like Jonah is, we don't deserve God's grace one iota more than the darkest soul you could find on the planet. And our job um, is to share God's heart. That Jonah is the only book that finishes with a question, should I not have compassion for all of these morally, morally darkened people and the many animals as well? And the point is, yes, we should have God's compassion. And there is no one who is too far from God's grace. Um, let's not live like kind of this separated bunch of elect who sit in home group Bible studies saying how dreadful the world out there is becoming and waiting to be beamed up to paradise. No, no. We need to share God's compassion for the lost men and women who are walking up Union Street on a Friday night, some of them drunk out of their heads. Um, can we bring something of God's love to bear in their lives? They can't tell their left hand from their right. They've been brought up in a society that has lost its Judeo-Christian values. Why should they want to know anything about our God unless we come and become a Bible to them by loving them, by showing them God's grace and by going overboard? No pun intended on Jonah going overboard, but us going overboard to reach men and women who are utterly in darkness. It's all about the compassion of God. And the last book we're going to look at in the Old Testament, isn't this a dramatic moment? It's 10 to 9, is Haggai. This is just an example. The last three prophets of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they're all post-exilic prophets. So we're no longer during in the pre-exilic or exilic prophets that are saying, you know, here's, you know, exile's coming. Here's why you're in exile. Here's all the oracles of judgment and doom for Israel and all of that kind of stuff. Now with Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, we have um, prophets speaking to the group of people who returned from Babylon, firstly under Ezra and Nehemiah. You remember their ministry, Nehemiah rebuilding the walls. Um, um, Ezra, the scribe who taught the word of God to the people, led them in repentance. But after a period of time of being back in the promised land, um, a, a small group of Jews now, there's only a small beleaguered group of people who have come out of exile now. The glory days of David are long gone and the people are apathetic. The people are much more interested in building their own paneled houses, making sure their own incomes are secure, their own economy is straight. They're much more interested in that than in building the temple of God. And Haggai basically comes and says to them, um, you've stopped working on the temple. Give careful thought to your ways. 
Um, God has allowed drought to come. He's allowed famine to come to waken up his people. These were signs that God was wanting to speak to his people. You become apathetic. You're wanting to look after your own economic well-being. So I'm going to take away that economic well-being until you seek me again. And I wonder if that's part of what God's doing through this coronavirus today, our economic well-being, which has become our idol. Is he taking away that economic well-being to speak to us again, to say, who are you with me? Um, and, and Haggai basically says, rebuild the temple, put God in his rightful place, get the worship structures right, put me as number one, and I will look after your economic status. I will look after um, Jerusalem. I will rebuild it again. I will make it great and glorious. I will bring my king to sit on David's throne forever. But you've got to put me first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, Matthew 6.33. That's basically the story of Haggai. And uh, he says that, again, like all the prophets, while there's a challenge and while there's condemnation of the people and how they're living, he paints this glorious future, a glorious future await David's line, King David's line. Zerubbabel is the key figure in Haggai's day who represents the line of David, which has come through exile now out the other side. And we still have this line of Judah. And who is going to come after Zerubbabel? Who is going to come down the line as a king of the tribe of Judah? And he is going to be the forever king. End of the Old Testament. Do I hear a drum roll? Maybe you're doing a drum roll or a dance in the background that I can't hear yet. But we're going to uh, not dwell on this moment with nine minutes left. We're going to go straight into our next set of sheets. So hopefully you have got the first New Testament sheet. And uh, I'm going to be looking here at what happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we're going to start on this page now, the first of our New Testament. Um, and we're just going to start charting what happens in between Old and New Testament and start to think about four Gospels. Why four Gospels? What image of Jesus do they bring? And all of that kind of thing. So on my eight minute countdown now. What happened in the 400 years? There was 400 years between Malachi, the last author of the Old Testament, and John the Baptist, the coming of Jesus, um, the Gospels, the New Testament. What happened during that 400 years? Well, Daniel has already told us. Babylon is taken over by Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia is taken over by Greece. And then Greece is taken over by Rome. And by the time we come to Jesus' day, basically um, Israel is an outpost, uh, an awkward little outpost, a runt of the Roman Empire. Um, it was a very small area. It was quite an important area because it was literally kind of the center of the globe where there, it was a trade route. So Rome was concerned about what was happening in Israel as a trade route, but also because Israel had this very strange religion that the Romans couldn't get their heads around. In the Roman Empire, of course, you had a plethora of gods. You worshipped the Roman gods, and particularly you worshipped the emperor. And that becomes a huge thing towards the book of Revelation for Jewish Christians who suddenly realize they can't worship the emperor, they have to worship Jesus Christ. And that's what gets them into trouble. And eventually a lot of them were martyred because of that. But Palestine becomes this minor outpost of the Roman emperor, uh, empire. Herod the Great is ruling over Palestine at Christ's birth. Basically, Roman, the Roman empire appointed local rulers um, and they could be rulers of Jewish descent. Herod the Great, of course, was despised by the Jewish people. He was a very violent man. He used to, would basically butcher all his opponents on his way to the throne. Um, and he was also a Samaritan, which was not very popular. Um, 
Samaritans were considered. Basically, when the northern kingdom of Israel went off into exile, there were a few groups of people still left behind, a few Jews left behind there, and they intermarried with other races. And those Jews that intermarried with other races became the Samaritans. So that's why the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were seen as half-castes. They were seen as not pure Jewish blood, and there was great rivalry between them. So wonder of wonders, of course, when the gospel goes from Jerusalem down to Samaria. That's a huge thing. God's interested in Samaritans. When Jesus tells his good Samaritan story, how can a Samaritan ever have the adjective good next to him? Anyway, Herod the Great rules over Palestine at Christ's birth. He's an unpopular ruler, but he has all of Rome's authority behind him. And of course, while Israel is under Roman rule, of course, they've been under lots of different rulers in the past. They've been under um, the Ptolemies. They've been under Antiochus Epiphanes, this absolute monster of a man. They've also tried to fight back during inter intertestamental times. There's a group of Jews called Mac the Maccabeans who were kind of hero figures. You might have heard of the Maccabeans, and they, they helped... Um, they helped battle against people like Antiochus Epiphanes and, and reclaim um, Jerusalem for Israel again. And some of these Maccabeans, people would have looked to them as, are they the Messiah figure? There's this idea of Messiah is growing and growing and growing. But of course, the Maccabeans come and go. The Romans take over. They're under Roman rule again. Um, who is going to free us from the oppression of Roman rule? And you can understand with a group of with, with Jews under Roman oppression, they thought that the freedom that the Messiah would bring would be a political freedom from the Romans. And you'll know again and again, Jesus um, doesn't want to be known as Messiah. It's very strange. You think Jesus should want to be known as Messiah by all the Jews, but he's very careful. There's a theme in Mark's gospel in particular called the Messianic secret. Jesus says, you know, he heals a certain person, and then he tells that person, don't tell anybody else what I've done. Because if you have the idea that I am a nationalistic Messiah, that's totally wrong. You remember in John's gospel, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 people, then look to him as a hero and they want to take him up in their arms. Like, you know, here's our great hero who's going to help us conquer the Romans. Jesus goes away from all of that. He is wary of all of that earthly king kind of spectacle. You know, here's our great miracle worker who's coming to rescue us from Rome. Jesus knows that his job is not to rescue Israel from political um, enemies in Rome. His job is to come and rescue the whole world from the greater enemy of sin. And if Jesus is going to do that, he's going to become incredibly unpopular among the Jews. Probably the reason why Judas betrayed Jesus ultimately is because he thought, Jesus, you're going to be such a disappointment. You haven't come to Jerusalem to throw out the Romans. You've come here to die. I can't believe I have, I have given my life to this. And of course, he gets paid off by the Romans and then very quickly realizes he's done something awful because the man in whose company he's lived for three years spoke the most gracious words he ever heard, did the most incredible feats um, that were ever done and um, Judas's treachery has become, has become historic. Um, but that's the kind of scene, you've got to understand the framework that Jesus comes in. Rome, uh, Jews looking for political freedom, they will grab on to, there were lots of messianic pretenders. We know from, this is the incredible thing about Christianity actually, there were lots of other messianic pretenders around the days of Jesus, many of whom had larger followings than Jesus had. Jesus had 12 disciples, that was pretty much it. What a, what a strange way to build an eternal kingdom, 12 disciples, and they're all uneducated. Peter, James, John, none of them would have had a seat in the synagogue. The best educated would have been between Matthew and Judas, which is why Matthew's a gospel writer, Peter's not a gospel writer because the guy can't write. They're illiterate. That's the point. It's only later on that Peter can really start writing and he uses an amanuensis. That's a long story. But this is the scenario in which Jesus comes. 
Other messianic creditors come often with bigger followings and sometimes they fight against the Romans. They're crushed automatically. What happened to the Jesus movement? This man, he was a Galilean peasant, spent most of his time not in the the hotbed of influence in Jerusalem spent most of his time with Galilean country, country folk, fishermen. That's where he spent most of his time. That's where he did most of his preaching. He, he gives a sermon on the Mount to people who were peasants. And then he comes to Jerusalem ultimately, and he keeps on telling his people, I'm actually coming to Jerusalem to die. And with every other messianic movement, every other messianic pretender, and there were loads of them, that movement fizzled out at the death of the leader. With Jesus of Nazareth, the exact opposite happened. This small little fledgling movement called Christianity. There were 120 Christians in the upper room in Acts 1. This small movement led by this peasant itinerant teacher who was known as a miracle worker. But did everybody know him? Can anything good come from Nazareth? He comes to Jerusalem. He dies um, horribly naked on a Roman cross. He's just butchered. He would have looked a pathetic, weak mess on the cross. And yet three days later, something happens that will change the world. And we're still speaking about it 2,000 years later, and it's growing. And I remember a friend of mine on a plane flying over Rio de Janeiro, seeing the huge statue El Salvador, the statue of Jesus over Rio de Janeiro, probably the biggest city in South America. And this Christian thinking to himself, how did Jesus get so famous? Well, we're going to find out. How did Jesus get so famous? If we're just talking about a crucified Messiah, we would never have even heard his name. Something happened three days later that led to a group of 12, all spreading his word across the globe, eventually dying for his name, but before they died, they wrote down his memoirs, which have been called Gospels. And these Gospels and Acts, the history of the church and Paul's letters, Paul himself would say his whole conversion comes back to seeing this risen Jesus. He was an opponent of Jesus. He sees risen Jesus. His life's turned upside down. James, Jesus' own brother, doesn't believe in him before Jesus dies. Then for some reason starts believing in him after he dies and becomes an outspoken um, preacher saying, my big brother is the son of God. And we know in 54 AD, James, uh, Jesus' brother James was stoned to death. Josephus tells us that. The secular history tells us these characters, these apostles were real men. They really died for the sake of this Messiah, who they believe rose from the dead, conquered death, conquered sin, conquered hell, showed that there is a world to come, an afterlife, and will take everyone who believes in him with him to a heavenly home. There is the mystery of this figure whom we worship. We worship 2,000 years later as the Son of God. And in the next three weeks, we're going to try and unpack his life, why his life made such an impact, why his teaching is still so alive today, and how we can be what one ministry calls themselves, how we can be Acts 29, <laughs> continuing the mission that the apostles started and taking the message of a crucified, risen Messiah to a world that needs to hear it, uh, to a world that Jesus is their only hope. 
we'll end it there and we will come back with uh, the four gospels matthew and so on next week thank you so much for listening let me just pray now um we're already past nine i'll pray briefly and uh, i will bid you a good evening Lord, thank you so much for your word. Um, may your word dwell in us. May this not just be a mental exercise where we think, oh, I really know what Ezekiel's about now. I know a bit more about Joel. I know a bit more about why there are four gospels. Father, may we not leave it there. May we realize that we are Messiah people and that those original 12 who were so convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead, that they were prepared to die for that truth when there was an emperor cult and um, pagan religions all around. They faced stronger opposition than we're facing today. May we follow in their footsteps and uh, walk in the footsteps of the suffering servant, be his people today and point the way for others to come to know him as well so that they may know the hope that the whole of Scripture is building towards. This is my Son, in whom is all my delight. Thank you for everybody tonight. Bless us, bless our loved ones. Go with us now until next week. In Jesus' name, amen.